I'm Sam McLaren Fahey, and this is You Survived, Now What? I want you to picture someone with an addiction. What does that person look like? What type of family do they come from? One in 10 adults battles an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Do you think you could pick that one person out in a crowd? Through movies and TV and the news, many of us have developed an idea of what addiction looks like. Today, we will hear from Krista, a 27-year-old woman from Wisconsin who might defy that idea for you. I survived. I survived. I survived. Now what? My name is Krista. I'm 27 years old. I am a wife to my husband, John, and a dog mom to our great Pyrenees, Barry. I'm also an early childhood educator. Working with young children every day is surely a light in my life, although it can be challenging and exhausting at times. I absolutely love seeing their little faces every day and having the opportunity to give them a positive first experience with their education. That's definitely why I've chosen this as my life's work. I'm also an alcoholic. I try not to just say that right off the bat as if it's the first and foremost thing that defines me because it's not, but it is something significant in my life that I have accepted and I need to pay attention to. I know some people prefer to say that they are a person in recovery, which does sound a little nicer out loud, but for me personally, it kind of downplays the reality, which is that I have had to admit that I am powerless over alcohol. Certainly, there is a lot of scrutiny and stigma with this word, but it is what it is. I have come to terms with that label, if you will. I had a wonderful childhood. My parents are still together and have been married for over 30 years, and I have so many wonderful memories from when I was younger. I think there is this assumption that people who have addiction issues or mental health issues come from broken families or had trauma throughout their childhood. Um, And this was not the case for me. I remember riding bikes and playing with kids in my neighborhood, going to dance class and summer camps and pestering my older sister whenever I had the chance. (laughs) I loved art and my mom would take me to craft stores and let me pick out art activities that I could do at home for hours. I loved playing cards with my dad in the evenings. We played Uno and 31 a lot. And I remember loving playing games. I still really do love to play games. I went to a Catholic school for kindergarten through high school, and we attended church every Sunday, which I think was a good thing for me to be aware of a higher power, just because I also had a lot of worries when I was a child. I had a hard time being away from my parents. I would often worry that something bad was going to happen to them, and I would never see them again, or I worried that they were going to forget to pick me up from an activity for whatever reason. I am a person who just very much needs to feel in control. And if I can't feel that sense of control over my own situation, I start to panic a little bit. Some of my worst fears involve being trapped, such as like on a plane or a cruise ship or in an elevator. And I just tend to have a bit of a worrisome mind and think of the what ifs in a lot of situations, which is something that I have been acknowledging and working on for a really long time. High school and college were wonderful times for me. I feel fortunate to have made really good friends, most of whom I still talk to almost weekly. I have heard more than once that a quality that stands out about me is that I'm a really good friend. And I really cherish and honor that because that is something that is really important to me. I want the people in my life to know that I am there for them and they should not have to feel alone in any hardships or obstacles they come across in their lives because I certainly had my fair share of obstacles in my early 20s and I did not feel that I had to face them alone. So that was really amazing. My 20s started out as a fairly normal decade in my life, I would say. I mean, I've only been alive for less than three decades. I think most 20-year-olds are probably doing what I did 
back then. Hopefully, if they're in college, which I was, going to class and keeping up decent grades, but also having fun, probably drinking on the weekends with friends, probably having to defeat a few bad weekend hangovers here and there. But my gosh, we had a lot of fun. I lived with seven girls my sophomore year of college. And at first you might think that it would turn out to be a catastrophe, but it really wasn't. We had so much fun. We had parties at our house, especially on game days where we would get a few kegs and invite way too many people over. I would say that I did binge drink fairly often, but it felt like everyone else was binge drinking also. So I wasn't getting myself into any dangerous or sketchy situations. I was for the most part still very smart and careful in my decisions because like I said, I am a worrier. And if anything, I was the one worrying that everybody made it home okay and safe at the end of the night. I met my now husband, John, when I was 20 years old at a football game day tailgate that we hosted at my house. He was 23 at the time, and I thought it was so great that I had someone who could buy me booze. (laughs) We had such a great connection right off the bat. I thought he was funny and energetic and passionate and I thought he was really attractive. He was so adventurous and we did so many fun things together, especially getting outdoors, which was a nice change of pace for college life. We celebrated my 21st birthday together and we enjoyed going on patios in the summer and having cocktails together and we would get into these deep conversations about our future. But again, nothing um, seemed overboard at this point. Nothing about my relationship with alcohol seemed excessive when I was about 21 years old. Then in May 2015, I was 22 at the time, we went up to a friend cabin for the weekend, about four or four and a half hours from where we lived at the time. Well, we didn't live together at the time, but the town that we lived in. And we drank. So that's what you did when you went to this place. You drink bloodies in the morning, drink on the boat all afternoon, drink at night around the fire, maybe get a meal or two in if we thought about it. So we stayed for the weekend and that's what we did. And um, Sunday morning rolled around and I woke up that morning obviously hungover, but something wasn't right. Something felt very threatening, very dangerous to me, like I was not okay and I needed to get out of that place. Kind of like I was feeling trapped, as I had mentioned a little bit earlier. I was extremely hungover and looking back, I think there was probably an actual chemical imbalance occurring in my brain that morning that was forcing me into like fight or flight mode, like severe danger is coming and I need to find safety in my own home now. Even though I felt like total shit mentally and physically and I just wanted to get in the car and start the drive home. We had to be decent human beings and help clean up the place and pack up our things, which inevitably was going to take a couple hours. So the sheer helpless panic set in about two hours after I woke up that morning and lasted well into after we eventually made it home that afternoon. And for the record, so this was like my first experience with a panic attack. And for the record, I wouldn't wish a panic attack on my worst enemy. I would rather have influenza, stomach flu, whatever, all at the same time than endure a panic attack. It is it is something that only people who have gone through them can understand the way it feels. It's The only way I can describe it is a feeling of sheer terror and loss of control and you literally feel like you're gonna die. The worst part about it, I think, is that you never know really when it's going to end. And that unknown of when is this gonna, when is this gonna give me some relief kind of tends to continue to fuel the panic episode. So here I am like shaking, can't eat, can't drink, can't do anything but continue to remind myself to breathe. And on top of all of this, I'm just hungover as hell. So I'm just physically 
not feeling good. I wasn't prescribed any medication at this point to help me. And I didn't know really of any coping strategies because again, this was my first encounter with this type of things. The rest of that day is sort of a blur. I think that night I was able to get to sleep and the panic subsided and I just looked forward to the next day when hopefully my hangover would be gone. You know, I could just look at what had happened as a thing of the past. But to my demise, the next morning I woke up and immediately the panic had set in again. And unfortunately, this became my everyday reality for what ended up lasting like three weeks before I finally was able to benefit from treatment and which was eventually finally diagnosed as a dual anxiety and panic disorder that I was suffering from. I would say I was suffering from panic attacks for seven or eight hours that I was awake throughout the day. So like if I woke up at seven, went to bed at nine, seven or eight of those hours, I was just, I was a mental disaster. I was interning at the children's hospital at the time and somehow I made it there every day and worked through the misery I was feeling on the inside of my body. You would think the distraction would have helped me, but I just couldn't shake the yucky feeling. Um, my saint of a boyfriend, John, again, at the time, he spent every night with me that summer because both of my roommates had moved home and that was part of the problem, right? I was alone, I was unwell, and I had no one that lived with me to distract me. So he watched every morning as I would wake up and barely be able to like throw myself in the shower and get out the door. Most mornings I woke up crying because I was just feeling so panicked and so much anxiety and I didn't know what was happening. And I really have so much gratitude for my family who would pick up the phone every time I called and just listen to me cry literally every day. And my mom or dad would come down for days at a time to make sure I was getting to work and just eating food on a daily basis. I really couldn't eat, so I was losing weight at kind of an alarming rate during this time. I just felt like my body had turned on me, like I somehow became a prisoner inside my own body and I couldn't find any relief. I didn't understand why this was happening to me, but now I truly believe it was a chemical imbalance as a result of prolonged binge drinking. It just wreaked havoc on my body and my brain. And then the very trauma of that weekend kind of kept it going for days and then weeks. It was just, it was very dark and it was, it was really horrible. To add to the stress, my health insurance was still through my parents at the time who were still living in my hometown where I grew up. So it was really hard for me to find coverage in my college town, I really have a new perspective on the mental health care system and how difficult it is to get treatment if you have insurance barriers or, I mean, wait lists to get in with professionals is kind of just a complete nightmare. My parents ended up paying, I think, over $800 so I could sit down with a psychiatrist for like an hour and have him prescribe me a medication. And then they paid like $130 twice a week out of pocket for me to go and see my therapist for one hour. Just to get to a point where I felt like I could stand on two feet and get my bearings so I could function. And to think of the millions of people who can't afford to just throw money out for treatment, my heart absolutely breaks for them. And as, as dark as this sounds, it kind of has given me a new insight to drug abuse and suicide as coping mechanisms because I know what it feels like to need out of your mental state. And if you don't have safe and reliable resources and treatments for your for support, I, I don't know what else people can turn to. And just a side note, I was and still completely am obsessed with my therapist. He was literally God's physical evidence of a guardian angel sent to me throughout this. And if you are currently working with a therapist, that you don't feel this strongly about, you need to find another therapist because they are out there. Don't be wasting your time and resources on a mediocre therapist. <laughs> so, okay, now 
I'm back on my feet that summer. That summer from hell was over. I started back in school in the fall, so I was still 22 at the time. My roommates moved back in. John was somehow not scared away. He was still dating me. I was still feeling anxious at random parts of my day, sometimes on the weekends when I wasn't distracted with work or school. But by that point, I started to realize like anything that alcohol could curb the panic when it crept in out of nowhere. So I can't pinpoint exactly if my drinking was a problem during this point, but I definitely recall grabbing a drink more than once when I felt anxiety kind of creeping in. And I think that habit, just the couple of times I let it happen, made me feel like I was in control. Like, okay, I have a sure way out if my brain turns on me. I can have a drink and calm down. Even if it was just a temporary fix, I didn't care. It gave me some control over the situation. But nonetheless, I still just kept on living life, having fun. I did quite well in school. I by no means was drinking every day. And I just kind of rode the wave through to my college graduation. I got my first job as an after-school program director, which wasn't exactly my dream job, but it was work and it was right out of college and the only thing people around me noticed at this point was that I wasn't tolerating alcohol quite the same. I think I got drunk faster because of being on my antidepressants so I would kind of go from zero to 100 really quick and oftentimes I would get emotional about god knows what I was just kind of an emotional drunk and I don't know if I was really having much fun with boozing once college was over then one day out of nowhere I'm at work and I got this text that would throw whatever mental stability I had achieved out the window and sent me navigating through a new unknown that I really had no control over. So I literally opened my phone and when I got home from work and I read a text from my sister and it said, Krista, we've been trying to get a hold of you. You're not answering. Dad might have cancer. My dad and I are like two peas in a pod. He when I was young, he always called me his little buddy. And when I was growing up, that's exactly what I was. I would go everywhere with him. Wherever he was going that day, he would take me with, whether he was going to his garage to work on cars or to the grocery store, and we would get ice cream together like a minimum of two nights a week in one of his old cars. And we would play cards at night. We had a very special bond. So when I heard these words that he was sick, all I can really recall is what happened to my body physically in that moment. I remember my heart starting to beat really fast and I got sweaty and my stomach went into knots and I just felt that impeding sense of doom. And when my mind finally caught up to what was happening, I just remember thinking, I can't be in a world without my dad. He has to be okay. He has to defeat whatever this is. And there is no other option that I could even mentally fathom in that moment. He was diagnosed officially about two days later with stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. His PET scan lit up like a Christmas tree. His abdomen, mostly his spleen, was covered with tumors. Now, I do have a bit of a medical background in my education, so I was very familiar with how this was going to go. He would need to have surgery to get a port placed, and then he would need chemo and lose his hair, and you know he would experience a lot of fatigue and nausea. So. I knew what was coming and I was sort of glad at this point that I wasn't living in my hometown because I didn't really want to see him going through all of that firsthand. The good news was that his prognosis was really good from the start. The doctor said that the chance at remission was really good and that this type of cancer usually responded well to chemo, but I still knew it was it was going to be a fight. It wasn't going to be pretty before all of that ensued. and. So my drinking started to pick up around this time because I wasn't finding a lot of things to distract me from the reality of what was going on. 
I just thought about my dad's illness and everything else took second priority. If I didn't think about my dad, if I didn't want to think about my dad, I would drink, but then I would get even more sad. And it was just a very unhealthy, unstable, scary place to be in. And I think around this time was when the dependency started to kick in and I started to view alcohol as a safety mechanism to protect my mental health, even though it really was doing just the opposite. It was a quick fix. I kind of convinced myself that it was okay for me during that time and that it was okay for me to have a crutch because it would only be temporary and I was still in control. If I didn't want to drink, I wouldn't and I was going days again without drinking. I went home after my dad's first or second treatment. I can't specifically remember but that was sort of a slap in the face of reality again. He had lost a lot of weight and his hair was starting to thin. He was pretty exhausted. And I just remember everywhere I would look in my house, there were like prescription pill bottles and appointment reminder cards and pamphlets about how to care for somebody going through chemotherapy. So that was the image I took back home with me after that visit, but he actually tolerated chemo really well. The first round was rough. After that, he seemed to tolerate it better, but I wasn't there to really witness that part. So that was challenging. I had to sort of envision how I thought he was doing rather than actually seeing for myself. I would just have to take his word for it. By this time, most of my friends from college had moved out of the Madison area. And that was really, really hard on me. My best friend moved to Colorado and we had lived less than a mile from each other since we were like six years old. So I was not checking in or socializing with my girlfriends and that made me feel extremely lonely. So I would buy a bottle of wine and convince myself, oh, I'm gonna have a nice night alone and maybe watch a movie. But then I would drink the whole bottle and sometimes I would walk and go get another bottle. And about 10 months after his initial diagnosis, my dad was in remission. I am still grateful every day that he made it through because I know that so many people facing cancer do not. And I think his strong faith in God is what really helped him and me throughout the process to have the right attitude. This was a time of celebration for my family and gratitude and relief and all of those amazing feelings when you know that someone you love is gonna be okay. But I was still pretty lonely and I was still drinking at this time more than usual. And a lot of the drinking I was doing was when I was alone. My dad finished treatment in August, and then John and I moved in together the following September. We were really excited. We were really in love. He was still with me, even though after two major hardships I had gone through in the first couple years we were together. By this point, I think I knew that our relationship was serious, and we were likely in it for the long haul. My relationship with John was never questionable during any of these times. Of course, I had my own insecurities that he was taking on baggage by dating me and that sort of thing, but we really brought out the best in each other and I could always find happiness and security, even on the hard days, having him along with me. So after we moved in together, John started to notice times that I was overindulging in alcohol. I was blacking out here and there. I was waking up really hungover and not wanting to do anything on the weekends. I was drinking on weekdays and I wasn't really drinking for any specific reason. I think I had just at this point gone through a lot of stress and anxiety in my life that I developed a not so healthy relationship with alcohol. I enjoyed being drunk or buzzed and I wouldn't be able to have just one or two and call it quits. But I was able to go days, even weeks without drinking. So it didn't, it was kind of gray area for me. It didn't really occur to me that I had a problem. And I was seeing at my therapist and we would talk about it and we never really discussed that I had to quit at that moment, rather try and get a handle on it and get it under control. So I would go through bouts where I would get it under control by taking long periods of time where I wouldn't drink at all, but then I would go really hard when the day finally came that I 
would allow myself to drink. And this led to really bad hangovers. And the hangovers weren't just physical, they were mental. I would get anxious about what I did the night before or if I didn't remember. John and I were arguing because he was frustrated that I wasn't in control and always getting emotional when I drank. So this really unhealthy cycle developed where I would drink heavily, wake up hungover, continue to drink through the following day in order to relieve myself of the physical and mental agony I was having from binging. And then that would lead to multiple day benders that were starting to last into the work week. At this point, I knew it was an issue. I knew that the alcohol was kind of taking control. I was waking up and needing alcohol at like 8 a.m. and that is not normal behavior. I would have moments where I would think, what am I doing? Like, this isn't, this isn't me. Why am I awake in the morning drinking alcohol? But it had such a grip on me at this point that it really wasn't a choice. It was more of a need so that I wouldn't go into physical withdrawal. I would stop at the liquor store after work and I would get liquor and drink it before I went into our apartment, but I would leave the bottle hidden in my car. And I was not teaching at this point. So I had a job where I worked from like one in the afternoon till six at night. So I had plenty of time to get myself together before going into work the next day. And I hid a lot of alcohol from John during this time. I think he knew that I had been drinking. He just didn't know really what to do because he was also catching wind that this was kind of a problem beyond me making a bad choice. It felt really dishonest and yucky and out of character for me to be doing these things, but I was just kind of trapped again in this in this situation where I was depending on alcohol to keep me afloat physically and mentally and I just remember feeling so sad and weak like how did I end up here who is this person and one weekend in February we traveled to celebrate John's brother's 21st birthday with him and we went out we all got smashed at the bars and the next morning we were on the way back home and I said to John that we should stop and get stuff for bloodies because of course I was thinking when is the next time I'm gonna get to drink because I feel like shit and he was like no that's a bad idea and I think I bought him on it kind of until he agreed so for whatever reason we ended up stopping at a gas station and I got a bloody mix and a huge bottle of vodka and I couldn't wait to get home and drink so I could feel a little better and so this was the first day of the last bender I would ever go on this particular bender lasted eight days and it was the worst one by far. I wasn't going to work because I was calling in sick because all I was doing was drinking and sleeping. John had to detach a bit at this point, which I understand he was feeling really helpless and frustrated and probably really scared. But on the eighth day, he told me he was gonna drive me to see my therapist and we would go together and we would go and talk about this and make a plan, like how we were gonna proceed, how we were gonna get out of this situation. And I don't remember a lot about this eighth day. This kind of is the part of the story that becomes really difficult for me to relive and it's it feels really scary, but John came to our apartment to pick me up to go see the therapist and I was just on the ground, unresponsive. Uh, I was still breathing, but I had a gash on my eye and massive bruises like on my legs and my back and on my eye. And I do remember falling down the stairs that day and I hit my face on a railing and I was just extremely intoxicated and I likely had a concussion. So John thankfully made the decision to take me to the hospital. I got there and again, it was just a blur. I only have what John recalls for my memory and I was not very cooperative with the ER staff, but apparently there were like six nurses in the room putting monitors on me and starting an IV. So I think they knew by looking at me that this was serious. I needed help and I needed it fast. John was taken out of the room and questioned by, I don't know if it was by authorities or by, or by the social workers at the hospital, but he was questioned about domestic abuse, which 
breaks my heart. I vaguely remember a nurse asking me if John had ever hurt me and I kept saying over and over, John didn't do this. Like I fell down the stairs, he would never hurt me and so on and so on. And apparently after they, the social workers or whoever left, the doctor sat down with John and showed him a piece of paper and on the top of the piece of paper written with a Sharpie was the number 0.54. And that was my blood alcohol level was 0.54. Like that is beyond what people die from when people die from alcohol poisoning. They said they didn't even know how I was talking, much less not in cardiac arrest or a coma. And they also said that I had built up such an incredible tolerance, likely from drinking for the past, I don't know, eight days straight. My heart rate and my respiratory rate was really low and I had a concussion and I had to be admitted to the cardiac unit, which is just insane. Like how, how could I get myself into such a dangerous, literally life or death situation? I didn't want to die. I mean, every time I recall this, I recall this day, I can't attribute this to anything less than a miracle. God was literally there with me saying, no, this this isn't your time. We've, I've got other things in store. And I stayed in the hospital for four days. The first night, someone sat in the room the whole time because I was on suicide watch. And John visited me every day after work, even though I was so highly sedated that I slept for about 20 of every 24 hours. But he would help me stand so I could take a shower so I didn't have to have a stranger helping me. And my mom and dad were in Florida at the time. They go down there for the winters. And they were trying to figure out how to get on a plane home. Like on the second day, my sister drove down and sat with me, even though I was awake for maybe 30 minutes of the whole thing. But I remember during those 30 minutes, a chaplain came in and prayed with us. And I looked over at my sister and she was crying. And that was really heartbreaking. Those four days were just a blur and mostly me sleeping. I remember on the third day, my mom and dad walked in and I just, I just started crying. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed and all I could say was how sorry I was over and over again. And I just kept saying, I don't know how this happened to me, you guys. I don't know how I got here. I was just so confused. And on the fourth day, a social worker came in and she handed me some options to go to inpatient rehab. And now I know this sounds kind of crazy, but because I was really deep in with this addiction, it was no joke. But I knew within me that I could quit drinking without rehab. I looked straight at my mom and dad and said, I can do this. I promise you, I can do this. I truly believed that with every bone in my body. I had gotten through so much hard shit at this point without breaking. And I viewed this as just another opportunity to prove to myself and to everybody around me that I was strong and I could defeat this addiction if that's what I decided I was going to do. I decided that day that I was done. I was tired and I was exhausted and unwell and I was just ready to be done with that shit, that cycle. And I made that decision when I was 24 years old. My mom is also a recovering alcoholic. She's been sober for like 28 years or something amazing like that since before I was born. So I did not know about my mom's alcoholism until I was probably in high school. You know, when she was going through her issues with alcohol, people didn't really talk about it. There was much more of a sort of negative connotation about that. And I think that she, tried to hide it because she was ashamed but also I don't think that there was a ton of conversation about like the genetic component to addiction and how much like research has gone into that and really kind of shown that if you have addiction that runs in your family you are very very likely to deal with substance abuse issues as well and so she wasn't really there like to witness my drinking habits in college so she didn't really like have the opportunity to like warn me 
But at the same time, I felt like I could be honest with her about what was going on. And John and I have talked about this, that it will be important for me to be like open with my children one day when they're old enough to understand what addiction is that, hey, this is something you will need to watch out for and just something you'll need to be on alert because I, I do believe that there is a strong genetic component that comes along with that. And she got her hands on an AA schedule and found a meeting the day I was going to get discharged. And we went straight from the hospital to a church basement and sat down at the table. And I remember I wore a baseball hat. One, because I just didn't really want to show my face. And two, I looked like I got ran over by a train like 18 times. The first thing they do when they open an AA meeting is ask if it's anybody's first meeting. And I raised my hand and with my mom sitting next to me, I just said it. I said, I'm Krista. I'm an alcoholic and I could barely get through the statement before the tears were just streaming down my face. My voice was cracking and just like nonstop rivers on my cheeks. I just sat there with my head down for the rest of the meeting and cried and cried. And I listened to what everyone had to say to me about the first step, which is admitting that you're powerless over alcohol and what that means. and. Honestly, I felt so much support from that group of people, even though it was a Wednesday at noon and most of the people there were like at least 20 or 30, maybe even like 50 years older than me. But it was like they all took me under their wing at once and they were going to help me and I was in the right place. And even though I felt so broken and so ashamed, I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to be okay. and. We said the serenity prayer and I got a coin for being 24 hours sober and they gave me my own big book and then I was on my way and just kind of like a backpedal that is so that's the first meeting I ever went to and now on my year sobriety anniversary I still go to that same meeting to get my coin because those people are really special to me and I kind of formed like a bond with them. I took a short leave from work right after I got out of the hospital and I went to a meeting every day for the first couple weeks. And sometimes I went to two meetings a day. And every morning I just woke up and asked God to keep me sober. Every night I would go to bed and thank God for helping me not to drink that day. And I read about other people's stories in the big book at night before I would go to sleep. And most importantly, I did not drink. I have not had a drink since that day and it has been exactly three years, two months, and 18 days. Now I feel like I need to give credit where credit is due because while I worked my ass off for my sobriety, I was lucky enough I did not have physical cravings for alcohol after I got out of the hospital and many, many people who are alcoholics do and for those people it is literally a grind every day for them not to drink and they crave it every minute and those people are fighters and they're doing it and they're putting everything they have into staying sober just 24 hours at a time i could even be around alcohol at this point because my mentality towards booze was like a stone wall i was not going to be tempted I wasn't playing games. I almost had this like hatred towards the substance because it had temporarily, of course, made me into a person that I didn't even know or recognize and who I kind of hated. And so the ability to not drink wasn't the challenge. It was the social aspect of being a sober person in a college party town in my 20s. The first year I went through some problems feeling isolated. You know, people my age went out to the bars on weekends and that's what we did to socialize. So I found myself turning down a lot of invitations to socialize out of fear that I wouldn't have any fun. But then those same nights I would be crying at home because I was lonely and frustrated and felt like I was missing out. And John and I really faced a huge adjustment in our relationship because we could no longer go and grab drinks when we were feeling bored. And I kind of resented him at times because he could go out with his friends and his social life just seemed much more fulfilling and exciting than mine, even though I was choosing to stay home. He did stay home with me a lot. 
but I couldn't always expect him to sit home with me every single Friday and Saturday evening. So we went together to see my therapist a couple times to kind of help us discuss how we were gonna navigate this new adjustment. And luckily John is a little bit older than me. And so he was in his upper twenties at this point and kind of transitioning out of that college drinking phase. And so he was so great about suggesting other fun things we could do together. And I really cherish him for making such an effort to make sure I was comfortable and doing okay in any situation where alcohol was present. And he still does do that for me. We did not keep liquor or wine in our home. We still don't keep vodka and wine in our home, but um, he knew if I was going to AA and just needed a moment to regroup and feel a little bit of sadness just to leave me be. And I would, I would work through that. I would work through that on my own. That wasn't something that he was gonna be able to fix. Now, I can't say that there were times when staying sober was easy. I, you know, since this time, I've been in two weddings. I've gone to a handful of bachelorette parties uh, where alcohol is obviously just the norm. I had to just go in with a positive attitude. And if it was getting to be too much, I would just say, okay, I gotta go. And I would just have a plan for what to do if I felt like things were getting uncomfortable. So I had sort of like a getaway plan to just be able to collect my thoughts. And we really love to go boating and floating um, on the lake during the summer. And these are all things that I used to enjoy with cocktails in hand. John, I mean, my family, obviously addiction runs in my family. So, and I have a much smaller family, but John has a larger family and alcohol is usually a part in most of those family gatherings, whether it's holidays or cookouts or, I mean, John and I got engaged and had a huge engagement party. And then we went to Mexico to celebrate. And then last May, we finally got married and went on a honeymoon. And I didn't have a drop of alcohol or champagne in celebration for any of this. And that was not easy for me. I knew I had to change my mindset from wishing that I wasn't so exposed to alcohol to being able to realize that it wasn't something I was going to have control over. So I can't expect people around me to curtail their drinking or alter their social gatherings just because I'm there. And I never really expected anybody to do that, but sometimes I just wish there wasn't so much focus around who's drinking what for such and such event or like what kind of alcohol do we need to bring? And so anyway, I needed to just find a strategy for dealing with those emotions when I felt frustrated or upset that I couldn't drink and everybody else could. And it was, and it still is a feeling of jealousy sometimes. I definitely get jealous like when everybody else gets to enjoy a drink and I don't but that's just I'm only human and I can't help it and of all the coping mechanisms I've gained throughout the last eight years or so during the healing process of my addiction and my anxiety disorder I have two things that I rely on that I wanted to share because I want to make sure that anybody who listens to this can take something away from it the first one is that when I feel like I want to drink, I do something that is called playing the tape through. And this is a strategy that I learned in AA. And basically when you have an urge, or sometimes I'll just be in a situation when I'm in a room and all of a sudden there's all this booze and I'm like, there's that sneaky son of a bitch. <laughs> I force myself to think about the realest and the most raw times in my, when I was in deep of my addiction and there are a few of them for me. One is definitely laying in that hospital bed for sure when John told me what my blood alcohol level was and even though this is not enjoyable or pleasant, if I spend enough time tuning into those memories that are tucked away in my brain, I remember why I'm sober and then I sort of snap back into reality and tell myself, okay, I cannot allow myself to be exposed to that kind of danger ever again. So playing the tape through and remembering why you chose to quit in the first place has been helpful for me. And then the other strategy that has been immensely helpful for me and my mental health is when I feel anxious or panicked or if I'm feeling that loss of control creeping in and my mind starts to spiral. It sounds a little silly, but I sort of channel this inner badass where I visualize myself literally taking the thoughts that are troubling me 
and physically putting them out of my mind and tell myself I'm not wasting any more moments of my life letting anxiety and fear control my well-being. I am the one in control and I'm not doing this. And so channeling that anger and using it to get mad at the very thoughts that are causing you distress has been very effective and very empowering for me throughout my 20s. And I will often find myself saying like, even out loud sometimes, I'll just say, I'm not doing this. I'm not thinking about that. And then I just move on to something else. And I have to say that that takes a lot of practice. It is not something that came to me overnight. I think it probably took me years to realize that that was a skill that was working for me. Krista had hit her absolute rock bottom, and she had the strength and support to pull herself back out. Krista survived, and she continues to survive every day, taking it one day at a time. Going forward, I I have gained a new sense of confidence in myself that I can, in fact, do really hard things. And I have encountered you know, quite a few pretty difficult situations as of late, but I came out on the other side of those situations and many people don't. Like like I said, my heart breaks for the millions of people who can't escape their addiction and it's often not by choice. People say that, you know, drinking is a choice, using drugs is a choice, like you can do something about it. You can do something of, you can do something about your mental health and it's really, the resources and the support is hard to come by. Getting through all of this has made me into a really resilient person and I don't complain very often. I tend to look at the glass half full instead of half empty and I really try and find the silver linings in each and every day and sometimes John will tease me and tell me like, Krista, everything isn't always rainbows and butterflies. And like if he has a really bad day and I try to help him recognize a positive and he's just not having it. The truth is, is that if I didn't live that way, I think I would be a very resentful and unhappy person. And I would find myself feeling sorry for myself far too often. And another thing that I have gained is the ability to enjoy my alone time. So being alone used to be like a threat, leaving myself alone with my crazy thoughts. And I no longer have that fear. I wear this bracelet that's kind of cheesy, but it's like a little gold bracelet and engraved on it, it says, everything I need is within me. That saying couldn't be any closer to like the life motto I have adapted thus far in my short life. It took me a while, but I truly believe that I have everything I need inside of me to know that I'm going to be safe and that I'm gonna be okay. I mentioned this in the beginning, but I never felt like I was in these battles alone. I had support from every witch angle, from my family, from my now husband, from my friends. And that's really because I sought it out. I wasn't afraid to tell the people close to me that I was not okay and that I needed to lean on them for a little bit. And they know that they can do the same when their life poses challenges. And I guess the last thing that I wanted to say kind of in regard to reaching out to your loved ones when you need help is that being in recovery has opened my eyes to some of the extremely dangerous and troublesome behavior that college students are exhibiting, possibly now more than ever with regards to substance abuse and particularly alcohol. There is such a fine line between what is considered normal drinking behavior in our society in your 20s and what kind of behavior is just downright addictive and dangerous. And if you are young or hell, no matter what stage of life you're in, and if you're wondering if your drinking habits are a cause for concern, talk about it with someone close to you because I tried for months to get a handle on what I thought everyone else was doing. And I was telling myself, well, I don't drink every day, so I don't have a problem. But that couldn't have been farther from the truth because it felt like overnight, I was just in the wraths of alcohol addiction and like hit my rock bottom face first. And if you asked me when I was 21 or even any of my closest friends, if I would have fallen victim to alcoholism, I would have kind of like 
smeared and thought to myself, not in a million years is that me. And I won't be associated with that, much less make that dumb of a decision. And let me tell you, no one is too good for this disease. No one is of high enough status to be deemed an alcoholic. And it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from or how much money you have or how much you think you're still functioning the day after a binge session. No one is too good to admit that they are powerless over alcohol. and you don't need to hit rock bottom for the light to turn on and make a change because everyone's rock bottom might not have the same outcome that mine did. Try and use your challenges and your hardest days as an opportunity to look back and gain insight as to how you got through those and remind yourself that you're stronger than you think. Everything you need is within you and this too shall pass. How many of us share Krista's college experience? Binge drinking and blacking out seems like a standard college night these days. Having an unhealthy relationship with alcohol is essentially celebrated in your early 20s, without any care for what the lifestyle is doing for your physical or mental health. For many people, it ends there. For others, like Krista, that hold continues. Having an addiction doesn't mean that you have to drink every day. It doesn't mean that you can't hold a job or live a normal life. It can be hard to recognize, and unfortunately for some, doesn't happen until it's too late. Krista was powerless to alcohol. She took her body to battle, and her body fought back. Today, Krista is healthy. Her panic disorder stopped when she became sober, and she hasn't had any issues with it since. She recognizes that going forward, she will have to have these conversations with her children, as they may be susceptible the way that she was. Don't be afraid to reach out and have these conversations. Krista has shared some resources with us that you can find in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Survived, Now What? Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. This show is created, hosted, and produced by me with cover art by my rad dad, Max McLaren, and original music and editing from Evan Nill. If you would like to be a guest or share your story using your name or anonymously, please email your story to yousurvivednowwhat at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at YSNW Podcast. Tune in each week to laugh with us, cry with us, and survive with us. And remember to never tell anyone it could be worse. I survived. I survived. I survived. I survived. Now what?